Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Episode 37, Into the Darkness. The New York subway system was once a rapid transit system leased by New York City to the New York City Transit Authority. Opened in 1904, the subway was one of the world's oldest, longest, and most used public transit systems in the world. Stations located throughout the boroughs of Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx operated at all hours serving more than 6 million people daily. By the mid-21st century, crime in the New York subway system was rampant, with a variety of gangs staking claim to stops and specific areas up and down the system. Strategically placed law enforcement, electronic surveillance, and artificial intelligence were widely used to deter, trap, and arrest violent gang members. The ineffectiveness of law enforcement to prevent mass attacks primarily those areas around strategic targets such as Times Square, Wall Street, Staten and Coney Islands, and Grand Central Station, led to civilian vigilantes patrolling various areas up and down the many sections of the rapid transit system. After hard target attacks to power centers in upstate New York, access to the subway system was limited. Simultaneous destructive attacks on the United Nations temporarily ended the operation of the New York subway system. With the rise of militant activity on Manhattan Island and the declaration of martial law, the New York subway system was permanently suspended. The tunnels, however, remained in use as subterranean hollows for survivors and scavengers to seek shelter or move throughout the city. Octavia was a survivor. Skills honed out of experience, training, necessity. She was not a hunter not a predator. No, she knew skilled trackers. Both men and women who capably scented animals gunned them down for food or sport. The same who tracked people, mutants, gunned them down for survival or, out of sick desperation, anger, deep-seated hatred that crawled the skin, begat psychosis, madness. For more than an hour, Octavia fled through the darkened tunnels, from beneath City Hall Station to the world under Church Street, over to the metro station near Park Place. She crossed from one side of the wrecked subway tracks, through inches of sewage, excrement, and massive rodent corpses. She made her way over to Barclay Street, where she paused. Heart beating, exhausted, skin sweating, hands empty, cold, weaponless. What the hell would she do without light? A weapon. Octavia's thoughts retreated back to Hoffa, to the Oddfellows. No, she muttered, frustrated but not angry. Put that in the past, where it belongs. This is what is. This is all there is. 
Octavia wandered blindly, following a hunch. The smell of gas. Maybe she could fashion a torch of some kind. She remembered General Castro saying something about the United Nations, that hollowed-out pit, the center of destruction. If they awoke in her absence, that was where they were going. Either that, or scavengers, maybe worse, Morlocks, broke into where the robotic bodies of Castro and his men hid. Whoever took them likely headed towards Grand Central, that no-man's land, every man's bazaar for trading in food, supplies, medicine. What was a sophisticated robot worth, Octavia wondered. Survivors could strip the simulacra for parts, microchips, batteries, the polymer pseudoskin. Have to keep going, Octavia thought, forging ahead. Her pace, however, slowed while her thoughts raced. She may be without community, but she was not lost. She may be without a weapon, but she was not helpless. She had purpose. Still, she missed the kid. Squeak. She always seemed to be scolding the boy, the young man. Or was she leading, training, teaching? What the hell difference did it make now? They had overcome the amphibious monster attacking them in the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Kick called it Leviathan. Octavia had heard of such things. Heard of the beasts and creatures of the sewers. Some said they were controlled by the Morlocks. Squeak was scared, but he survived. Then, he was felled by some rockhead bastard. A face in a window. An enemy Octavia never really saw. She put him down nonetheless. Revenge. She stole a deep breath, found her bearings, kicked a can, kept going. As the lid closed on the coffin, Danielle Devenu felt anxious, a wave of claustrophobia. The hiss of gases echoed. Gelatinous liquid filled the cocoon in which she lay. She anticipated the minuscule pinpricks in her skull, but it was a kind of pain she had never felt before. In the globular haze of brownish-yellow light, Danielle felt she was being choked, suffocated. Then, an oddly passive feeling settled over her body. Every muscle relaxed. A brilliant green flashed before her eyes. Time passed. Could have been seconds or hours. There was no way to know for sure. In those moments, she remembered the angelic face of her prostitute mother, Danita. The sunken features of her conspiracy theorist father, Jacques. Danielle felt as if they were there. She was a little girl again, clinging to a doll. All she had to do was reach out, touch them. The hybrid experience was both horror and delight. Sensations physical, mental, Danielle suppressed. Enmity, neutrality, bliss. Bright shining light penetrated pool blue eyes, blasting through to Danielle's brain. And yet, the young woman's eyelids felt like solid steel. She saw through the eyes, her eyes as a baby, in the womb, safe, serene, 
and not alone. Another heartbeat near her. Was it her mother? Was it Danita? Oh God, Danielle thought. She was feeling herself being born. A memory she couldn't possibly remember. And what for? What was the point? Was this what the green stream did? Revealed worlds, memories secluded in the subconsciousness? Those burning columns of chaos, order, disorder, desire, exposed sparks of experience, substance without form. Take it, Danielle thought. Shape it. Make raw material something meaningful. Give birth to yourself. Move on. You must get through this. Then, she was in a massive white-walled room, a surgical theater, light everywhere, vacant faces hovering. Her mother, pretty, even in desperation, full lips parted, a gap between teeth. Exhaustion illuminated every pore. A voice hovered somewhere behind. Jacquees, the woman implored. She's too tired to carry on. Danielle's father lingers near, but out of sight. His Strasbourg French is thick, bizarrely syrupy, in a way Danielle didn't recall. Save him, Maricela, Danielle's father pleaded. Please save him. You must. Save him, Danielle thinks. Him. Who? There are tunnels leading to rooms within rooms. Corridors lead through scenes from Devenu's past. Here, she is a child in the project's nursery. Danielle enjoys playing with blocks and cards, selecting parts, counterparts, learning how to make things fit together, how parts make a whole, how pairs make partners. She is a beautiful child. There are always adults near to compliment her, to listen to the rants of her father. Children admire Danielle, but they keep their distance, maybe unsure what to expect from her. And although she is never alone, she dwells in loneliness. Self-inflicted loneliness, conjured loneliness, anger at her father, misunderstanding of Danita, whose lovely Swiss voice penetrated Danielle's heart and stayed there long after Danita was sent back to the squalor. Danielle follows halls of clean, pristine glass, sloped floors leaning this way, that way, a ship on rocky seas. She knows the children of all the ambassadors. Their parents' politics is not their politics. Teenagers struggle or embrace the politics of youth. Uncontrollable hormones, the search for beauty, belonging, the opposite of plainness, humiliation. Boys can't help but reveal their hunger. Danielle's peers broadcast their envy. Danielle flirts, flaunts, plays a game she half detests. It is too easy, and therefore, longing turns to boredom. Time wasted being phony, pretending that being imitative is its own kind of authenticity. Jacquees Devenu ignores his daughter, rejects her, fails to parent. And yet, somehow he manages to transmit a kind of affection Danielle can get nowhere else. Even in her teenage years, Jacquees lulls her to sleep singing Serge Gainsbourg, Jacques Brel. You, Danielle, may feel alone, he tells her, 
but you are never alone. Your brother, your shadow, he follows you always, Leiter Sparv. She never knew what this meant, and she doesn't care. Trust your father, her mother, Donita implored when Danielle was a toddler. Everything he does is to shine light in the darkness. But she hides from Jacques, lies to him, confronts his allies, lays with the sons of her father's enemies. Her mother dies in the squalor. The Shadow Council calls it an unfortunate accident. Jacques calls it a suicide. He blames the Council, the Ambassadors, and their advocates. Jacques demonstrates against law enforcement, the Council. He seeks out the location of the Central Processor, rallies others to, quote, destroy the gendarmes and their electronic beast. He is accused of founding the dissidents. Here in the green stream, red mist fills your eyes. Crimson red, iron, rust red. And then, the decision. Danielle tells her benefactors in the Phoenix Leadership Program about Jacquees' activities. But that wasn't all there was, was it? There was always a voice, not Danielle's voice, but a voice inside her, a more masculine, inner voice, some phantom conscience telling Danielle not to do what she can't undo. Don't put your hand in the fire just to know it is hot, says the voice. But Danielle is impulsive. She knows regret will never substitute for the loneliness. She fills the God-shaped hole with false friendships, practice Catholicism, education, Leadership and administration classes all point in one direction. And to what end? A post of privilege, power, control. Or, what was it Danielle told herself, convinced herself, a chance or opportunity to help, to serve, to save others? The youngest project administrator to earn her code to the command center. The proud-walking, articulate woman placed in charge of the top-secret operation in the laboratory. That world of secrets where Danielle welcomed the challenge to distinguish herself leading the brilliant engineer Donna Chang and the similarly talented Surgeon General Meryl Ganaya. She was charged with leading the daughters of the underground's most celebrated technologist and the architect of its controversial class system. They had their reputation, their secrets their accomplishments and failures, and Danielle Devenu had hers. She knew things about them they didn't know, and she was determined to lead honorably, succeed, and share that success with the others. Until now, Danielle had no idea what that was supposed to feel like. How could she be proud, satisfied, when she helped General Castro defy the council? She took up arms against law enforcement to protect John Bath. In the end, her father had assured her, you will see, I was right all along. Was it true? Had Danielle finally filled her crazy father's shoes, transformed herself from collaborator to dissident to renegade? Danielle felt the urge to vomit, to relieve her bowels. Nothing happened. Instead, the eyes of her robotic face opened. 
autonomically acclimated to the deep, inky blackness. She felt the awkward feeling of the pseudoskin molding into shape. Neck tendons tightened. Breasts formed. Stocky arms diminished around graphene and circuitry. Danielle Devenu was born. Reborn as something new. Living, but not alive. Machine and skin, but not bone and blood. Where... where am I? The general leaned his back against Devenu as if to steady, reassure her. Their simulacra were seated and bound, back to back in a semicircle. I feel sick. Danielle shivered, struggled uselessly. I gotta get out of here. Get me out of here. Get me out of this body. It passes after a while, Chang reassured her. The engineer remembered her own first experience porting through the green stream into the robot body. Go easy, Danielle. Take care. Where are we? Devenu's oculus focused, electric muscles tensed. New York subway system, Castro replied, under Manhattan. Why are we bound? Chang struggled against the bindings around her hands, felt something tighten around her midsection. Whatever it was, felt organic, something living, tentacles, not rope or steel. I didn't get a good look at them. Saw them walking there, Benjamin nodded his head, down that tunnel. They weren't human. What do you mean? Devenu asked. Rockheads, or Morlocks. A ladder, I think. They looked amphibian. Alien. Another mutation? Chang asked. Probably. The Oddfellows' leader, Hoffa, he said the Rockheads and Morlocks were at war with each other. They gather at Central Park at midnight, under the full moon. They battle each other, fight it out, for dominance of the city. Danielle felt her senses recovering, her body settling. You said the Rockheads are led by Silvio Jones, the gangster. Yes. He controls... Well, controlled, ingress and egress to the island by water and over water. I don't know how much, to what extent, but people, survivors, humans, they fear him. Benjamin recalled his encounter on the Brooklyn Bridge with the ambiguous Nuestra Señora de la Santa Muerte, Our Lady of the Holy Death. Santa Muerte claimed the term mutant was an oversimplification of what she was, she mentioned mystics, demigods, thralls, magicians, angels, and demons. When the general asked if Santa Muerte served Silvio Jones and his rockheads, she scoffed. Don't be ignorant, she insisted, before using her power to control his simulacra. If it hadn't been for Lieutenant John Running Bear and Professor Iku Kaminari, Castro's robot body might have been destroyed. Whatever binds us, Daniel's voice pulled Benjamin back into the present, is strong, powerful, some unknown technology, or something living, Chang interrupted. Yes, Castro agreed. The simulacra are strong. We should be able to... Well, Cuddy was able to break chains. We were all able to leverage skills we couldn't in our human bodies. A quiet moment passed between them. 
only the distant sound of water dropping to the floor into the flooded subway channel nearby. Castro thought back to the data disk Iku gave him, a recorded message for the professor's family. Kaminari wanted Castro to broadcast the message, preferably at Big Kiss in Boston, the only remaining high-powered radio station still transmitting. Castro hoped the disk hadn't been taken from his coveralls. He truly wanted to honor Kaminari's request. Danielle was agitated. You don't think it was the odd fellows who captured these bodies? No. Castro half shook his head. The simulacra were secluded in a barred chamber. The bodies are heavy. The odd fellows would have to use their machines and precious supplies to carry us. And they wouldn't have left us here. Morlocks, Chang said, then emitted a tongueless laugh, a simulated nasal sound. What? asked Danielle. It's a reference to science fiction, the work of an author named Wells, an English author, if I'm not mistaken. In the novel, a time traveler encounters two races of people. One is a race of creatures living in underground tunnels. They surface only at night. The traveler later discovers both races are likely descendants of humans. With all due respect, Donna, Daniel said, this is not science fiction. That's not my point, Chang replied. The term has been used interchangeably throughout the past century or so for any humanoid creature dwelling underground. Yeah, Kesher said, faintly remembering the story from a movie he saw, a book he never read. Maybe what I saw was... was something else. You said alien. Chang's imitation voice was flat, monotone. Castro ignored the statement, strained to see where they were, to force his eyes to sharpen on a sign or landmark that would jog his still somewhat foggy memory. What do the two of you see? he asked. Tunnel, Chang replied. Dark, but adjusting the brilliance of the ambient lights. World Trade Center. How did you do that? Danielle asked. It takes time, Castro told her. You'll get acquainted with your strengths and limitations. Chang scoffed when the general spoke the latter. Suddenly, their mostly quiet conversation was disrupted by a stirring in the darkness. Something twitched around a corner, moving cautiously. What is it? Danielle heard the sound clearly, but bound as she was, faced the opposite direction. Only Castro saw the dim, cerulean glow crawl the dirty floor. The light itself seemed to bend, encroaching towards them. The same thing I saw as I woke from the green stream. The general's voice was deliberate, but hushed. The gleaming, blue figure approached. Castro internally dialed his oculus wide open, zooming in, clarifying what inched closer. Despite being constrained, he wanted to be ready. The tall, gangly creature moved forward, almost gracefully. Its elongated spine bent, royal blue interior organs, an entire circulatory system showed through translucent skin. Aqueous fluid dripped to the floor. It stopped a meter from Castro. Arms with two distinct elbows reached out, webbed hands with three fingers pointed. Please. 
Castro leaned away, pushed into Devenu's back. Chang sighed. Nowhere to go. She'll be. Globular eyes widened. Its large head pointed forward. A narrow, scaly chin seemed to recede. Minuscule rectangular pupils shot back and forth, scanning the bound trio. Finally, the creature inched closer, a towering form illuminating the cavernous hall. Its body emitted a pale, almost electric, turquoise light. Tu mas folisi antropodita, eina technito. Through, through. Tierniyati. I, I don't understand. Castro was curious, but cautious. He remained still, considered the creature, made note of discernible organs. Striations along its deep blue torso hinted at muscles. Narrow bones descended to where large sacks dangled between its legs. Aquamarine tadpoles swam in the fluid-filled bags. My god, Castro uttered. What... what are you? The creature waggled a finger in the general's face. It spoke oddly, defiantly. Oh, he fails. I don't understand, Castro said again, frustrated. Greek, Chang spoke solemnly. It speaks in Greek. Well, I don't speak Greek, Benjamin turned his head. He wished Sean was there to translate, to speak to their abductor. Do either of you? The others were about to respond when the blue creature's hand reached out to the general. Slender fingers touched his chin, forcing the general to look at it. Not gods. The creature's pointed tongue curled in its lipless mouth. It spoke English slowly, as if searching for the words. Not us. What are you? Benjamin hesitated. We're... We're not here to hurt you. Anacribis. Incorrect. The creature's arms drew back, reaching into a weed-woven bag around its waist. Both hands dipped into the bag slowly, wound back around to its front swiftly. The blue creature dropped Castro's Beretta and Cuddy's Sawn-Off, magazines, bullets, and shells in the general's lap. Castro gazed down at the weapons, paused, processed what he wanted to say. But before he could speak, Chang turned, looking slantways at their captor. Are you... are you what they call a Morlock? The creature shifted, moved its long, hunched legs more than a shoulder's width apart. It seemed to cackle, but in imitation. Oh, not Morlocks. It pivoted, moving to face both Benjamin and Donna. It knows what is. Knows Atlantean offspring of Poseidonus, of Neptune. Birthmates of Kraken, the Shoggoths. Keepers of Megatherio, Urani, born to this world. Mythology, Donna spoke softly. Anacribis, incorrect. The creature lurched forward, its dominating face near Donna's. When it spoke, 
Water visibly flowed through its body like blood, rising through a curved type suspended in its long throw. It knows, but is not Sarka. Not flesh. Not Sarka as Emi Sarka. It lives, but is not Metalenenos, nor Anthropos. We're not mutants, we're humans, Daniel said, understanding some of what the creature said. Not Metalegmenos. He must stay Anthropy. Tiene. What is? Clear water dripped, then poured from the creature's lips, over Donna's coveralls, into her lap. What do you mean, Atlantean? Castro raised his voice, trying to bring their captor's attention back to him. You said Poseidon, Neptune. Do you mean the gods and titans? Okay. The creature shot back, angrily, amazed. Neptune, Danielle said. She watched the walls, the floors, the tunnel, bathed in the creature's ethereal blue light. You mean the planet. Planetis, she spoke awkwardly, her voice shaky, filled with fear. The creature moved from where it stood in front of Benjamin and Donna. Long, mantis-like legs stepped broadly, precisely, arms dangled. It hovered near Danielle. It asks. It knows. The creature seemed to ponder the young woman, her simulacrum. Its head tilted. Webbed hands came together. It is not Metalagmenos, nor Theos, nor Rughead. Why does it take this form? Danielle shook her head. I I, I don't understand. Leave her alone, Castro demanded. I'm their leader. You will talk to me. The creature did not move, but Benjamin suddenly felt an overwhelming sense of pain to which his robot body should be immune. He hadn't felt anything as intense since the bridge, his encounter with Santa Muerte. You're not a Morlock, he cried out, forcing mechanical eyelids together. Are you... what was it, Castro thought? What was it Santa Muerte referred to? Are you Archons? The creature flitted back around to face Benjamin and Donna. No! Its voice boomed as it moved around the circle of captives. Bulging yellow eyes shifted. Pupils peered, as if capturing unique information about each of them. The creature's mouth ceased moving, but the trio clearly heard its voice. Fluid no longer dribbled from its mouth. Pestinalithia. It spoke directly into their minds. They understood it, as if it clearly spoke their native Hebrew, French, or Chinese. Tell the truth. What is this flesh? This artificial bone? Are you creations of Demi? Or something else? Tell! I don't know what you're talking about. Daniel's thoughts were heard by all of them. No. The creature continued its telepathic communication. It raised a hand, fingers pointing over Devenu's head at the general. It knows. As much as Benjamin tried protecting himself, to control his own thoughts, his mind raced, wandering to his encounter with La Signa Belle, the winged creature on Governor's Island. She called herself Camille, said something similar to what the amphibian creature before them said. 
Camille identified Castro's consciousness was ported into an inorganic machine. The swan-like creature told the general she was not a god, but also not human. Perhaps an evolution to the angelic, Camille told him, as she floated overhead, arms outstretched, neck craning. The blue creature paused, placed a hand on its striated, scaly chin. It says it knows not. Its memory speaks of the other. La Signa Belle, the swan, the beautiful swan, now tell. We're human beings, Castro relented. Our bodies are underground, but our minds are in these machines. Why? The trio heard inside of them. Why does it choose this form? The creature pointed at Donna, tapped Castro's forehead, stared eye to eye with Danielle. This is what our bodies look like, Chang thought. So Ipoia. Danielle nodded. Yes, underground. Castro spoke. This is who we are. We send our minds into this machine so we may... So it may deceive, the creature interrupted, again speaking telepathically. Oh, he... Danielle shook her head slightly, mentally communicating. So we may reveal ourselves as we truly are. This is the only way we can explore the surface of the planet. Please... Saspara Kalume. We aren't like the others. We aren't here to harm you. You have to believe us. You have to. Believe, it says. Pistevo. Lips say one thing. The mind betrays. Oki. No, Castro said. We're telling the truth. Alithea. It says it is human. It is not human. It says Iboios, underground. It is not underground. It says no harm. It carries Obla, weapons to destroy, weapons of survivors, weapons of rockheads. What are you talking about? The more Castro struggled against the tentacles binding them, the more the creature seemed to stretch, constrict. It will come with us. The creature's brilliant glow diminished slightly as it turned. We'll see what is truth, what is lies, what human machines worth. Castro was about to speak, to protest. He had been a prisoner before, but nothing like this. But before he could say anything, the creature waddled before them. Its heart glowed once, twice, three times in its chest. As it moved away, no longer concerned with them, the trio felt the tentacles binding them, compelling them to rise, to walk. With no other choice, Castro, Devenu, and Chang followed behind their captor, walking into the darkened tunnel. Their path was illuminated only by the now dim blue hue emitted by the telepathic, amphibious creature.
Aftermath, a Fire Pit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with contributions from Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner. Music by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. The sound effects used in the production of Aftermath are used with permission by the creators, and links to these sound effects can be found in the description section of each episode. Please visit our website, aftermathpodcast.net, for updates, original artwork and music, character dossiers, and more. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Facebook at facebook.com slash group, and on YouTube at firepitcreativegroup. Aftermath and its story, characters, music, and artwork are copyrighted by Fire Pit Creative Group. <laughs>